Kelly, here's the thing you need to know about me. I work alone. No, you don't. I'm a rogue, a rebel, a loner. No, you're not. We have a whole team of people here at Chipperish. Noelle, me, Joshua. Don't try to make me part of a community. Friends are emasculating. God, I hate that word. I know, literally the stupidest concept ever. Fucking patriarchy. Right? Welcome to Still Dead. I'm researcher and Southern Fried Scholar, Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert, Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And we're here today to talk about Angel, Season 2, Episodes 3 and 4, First Impressions and Untouched, both of which are skippers. A note, when we talk about our second episode today, Untouched, we're going to be addressing childhood sexual assault and abuse. So if that's something that is difficult for you, we're going to put a warning in before we get to that part of the show. So you have plenty of time to bow out if you need to. All right. You can't fire me. I'm Vision Girl. So let's raise the stakes. In First Impressions, Gunn asks Angel for help dealing with a demon named Devac in his neighborhood, but he's not pleased when Angel brings Wesley and Cordelia along for the ride. Later that night, Cordy has a vision about Gunn, and when neither Angel nor Wesley answer her phone calls, she goes out to save him on her own. In a series of misadventures, they end up getting Angel's car stolen and then are attacked by a pack of vampires at a party while trying to track down the thief. Eventually, Cordy and Gunn track down Devac, and just as he's about to kill them both, Angel and Wesley ride in on a motorcycle and together they take down the demon and his horde. Gunn learns his lesson and grudgingly accepts working as part of the team. Meanwhile, Angel is sleeping a lot and having recurring dreams about Darla, which appear to be sapping his strength. First Impressions aired on October 10th, 2000. It was directed by James A. Cotner, who directed over a dozen episodes of Angel, and written by Sean Ryan, who will be back later this season to co-write Blood Money and to write Belonging. Okay, so First Impressions, you know, is really like the, the Cordy Gunn episode, you know, mm-hmm. where we have Cordy being the heart of the team, bonding with Gunn. Um, so there's kind of a lot of fun stuff in this episode. Uh, what are your moments of perfect happiness? Well, one came from you reading the episode summary just now. <laughs> because when you framed it in terms of like a series of misadventures, yes, I, I thought, don't tell mom the babysitter's still dead. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got a little tickled by that. Um, but for me, this opening dream sequence is everything oh i know this oh my god so we have you know lauren and angel on the stage and lauren says tell the truth you've been practicing haven't you and angel's like a little (laughs) lauren asks him but not in front of a mirror and angel's like in the shower (laughs) the the idea of angel practicing his singing and like coming in and, and singing for lauren like that oh my god i loved it um And then Lauren, you know, says, I've never seen you open up like that. So we get the sense that Angel is opening and his heart is on the line. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And and Lauren gives him this warning. He says, your heart may not be beating, but it still can break. You've come to a bend in your personal uphill road, bro. Whether or not that slows you down, that's up to you. And then we get Darla. 
And then we get Darla. I know it is really fun. And I love how, um, like, you know, this is a dream thing. And so all of Angel's barriers are down. He's, you know, really vulnerable with Lorne. He's been practicing his singing so that he can do these, uh, um, these songs for him, which are both clown songs. I thought that was funny. Um, and, uh, and I love how goofy he is when he's dancing with Darla. He's just so happy to be with her, which is, a really interesting thing to see from Angel's perspective because his feelings about Darla you know uh, uh, the last time we saw them together was in Buffy when he killed her you know so I mean like they've got to be complicated feelings and yet in in this dream space he's so like goofy happy in love with her yeah and and this kind of branch of season two of angel Mm -hmm. is is one of my favorite parts of the whole show because the angel darla love story is one of the things that i come to angel for Mm -hmm. and every time this episode starts i'm just like yes yes finally there's (laughs) darla on the dance floor in that red dress oh the red dress that is the dress i think of when i think of darla which happens a lot Um, (laughs) but we we have this you know this line from darla where she says i've been here the whole time just waiting for you Mm -hmm. you know and so she's she's tapping into this love that he has for her Mm -hmm. and things are i mean you know they were basically vampire psychopaths together yeah but there's also a tenderness between them and there is real love between the two of them Mm-hmm. As dark and dysfunctional as it may be. And we see that so beautifully when we cut from the dream where Angel is kissing Darla to seeing him smile in his sleep. Yeah. Because you can't fake or think your way out of that kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but then I wanted to know what kind of tea do you have to drink before bed to have those kind of dreams? Because whatever <laughs> it is, I want it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure Celestial Seasonings does that, but if they do, <laughs> yeah, if they do, they should have they should have a you know a tea called Vampire Dreams, and man, that would sell out, right? <laughs> and and I also think it's kind of unfair that Angel, who is still dead, gets more sleep than me. I know well, he's sleeping all the time now because yeah. he's having those dreams. I mean, my God, yeah. I mean, obviously something's going on with Angel. Something we know that Darla is actually in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we know that whatever it is that's happening to him that's making these dreams happen is supernatural in nature, and that they're they're messing with him. You know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy, and it's it's kind of dark in. You know, it feels like there's some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of brainwashing going on because the way that he's reacting to Darla, the way that he's reacting to being with her is so inconsistent with how he, you know, has reacted to her in the past. Yeah. And to me, I kind of headcanon that two ways. Mm -hmm. One is I don't think they got it right in season one of Buffy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the way that he reacted to her, the way that he killed her had a lot less to do with how he felt about Darla and a lot more to do with how he felt about Buffy and yeah. who he was trying to be mm-hmm. and who he was trying to become. And yeah. they represent two very clear symbols for him between mm-hmm. Angelus and Angel. Yeah. And I think killing Darla was a lot more about him trying to kill Angelus. Yeah. And to kill that side of himself. Mm-hmm. But 
I don't think that they get the love story between them right until we get to this part of Angel. Yeah. And I love what they do with it here. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's, it's really it's, fun. It's just fantastic. And it's, yeah. And I think that one of the things we know about Angel is he carries a lot of emotions that we don't see. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and he thinks about things deeply that we also don't see. Mm-hmm. And I think his love for Darla is one of those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's brainwashing him in terms of making him sleep. Yeah. And she may be driving the content of those dreams, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of making them erotic and, and making them, you know, where he wants to stay asleep. Right. But I, I don't think he can be brainwashed into loving her. I think he is becoming open like Lauren warned he's becoming open to how he really feels about her yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because they were together for a very very long time yes and she made him yeah you know Mm -hmm. it's so they were together for a very long time but but she also turned him yeah and and I think that the connection between the two of them is is real and Mm -hmm. I love how it plays out in this season yeah, no, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, for right now, that's not what these episodes are about. We're just right. kind of getting these little vignettes of of him dreaming about Darla, Darla's presence with him. Um, but uh, but it's not really where the episode is going. Where the episode is going is Gun. Yeah, and I love Charles Gun. I love he walks in. He's all business. You know, um, he's got this great, I mean, badassery on one shoulder, swagger on the other. I mean, Gunn <laughs> has got it down. Um, so I absolutely love seeing him. I think it's wonderful. I do, too. Um, and I like the kind of the comparison or conflict um, that we get between Gun and Nabbit. Yes. Uh, because Nabbit just randomly shows up again for no apparent reason. <laughs> right. Um, but I did like... We have Nabbit in his full, silly, pretend demon hunter, you know, mode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's so excited because Angel called him there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you can tell, he's really hoping to be part of something exciting, you know? Yeah. But mm-hmm. he just has this little kid enthusiasm for it. And I think it's kind of adorable. But when Angel says, um, I need financial advice, you see Nabbit code switch instantly. Yeah. Into completely fully competent badass financial advisor mm-hmm. and and i like that i really liked him stepping into his expertise yeah no capability is sexy even in david nabbit like yes. it's nice <laughs> and there's that response from cordy is anybody else getting warm you know? <laughs> <laughs> which i like you know I I mean, it's, he's he's badass in his own very specific way you know all right. And I love that Angel brings in the entire team like Gun, you know, separates everybody into warrior and not warrior. You know, that's mm-hmm. how he sees it. But Angel knows that everybody has something to bring to the team and he wants to bring everybody along. Um, and Gun is kind of resistant to that. Yeah. Um, but I like that that tension. And I like the fact that Angel is very much dependent upon the whole team. Yeah, I did, too. And I like how Angel is watching Gunn's, I guess, the intensity yeah. with which Gunn is approaching this case. Because, you know, Gunn came to Angel for help. Mm-hmm. And and then when he gets a little too, I don't know, maybe too violent in his attempt to get answers, yeah, you know, Angel intervenes and Gunn says, let go, man, this is my case. Mm-hmm. And Angel says, it was, now it's mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like how, you know, 
when Angel finally showed up, because we'll get to that in a second, right? staking this, um, and realized that Gunn came to him for help, he takes that seriously and he looks at it holistically. Yeah. It's not just, okay, I'm going to help Gunn find this demon. It is, I am going to help Gunn. Yes, exactly. And I really like that. And I like that we have Wesley and Cordy, you know, like they're they're along for the ride, but they're not just there. They're in the fight, you know. Yeah. And so this idea that Gunn sees them as not warriors, you know, is is disproven in that moment. I mean, they it's harder for them, you know, because they don't have Gunn's specific skill set and they don't have Angel's supernatural power and, and strength, although Angel's strength is being sapped somewhat as well. Um, but it's but they're in they're they're scrapping, you know. And they're yeah. and dusting vampires and getting in the fight. And I really like that. I loved it when Cordy staked that vamp. Right. And she said, I'm so sick of dust. <laughs> it was such a cute callback, you know, to her complaining about the dust at the hotel. Sure. Uh, but I loved after that fight how Wes and Gunn and Angel and Cordy were all sitting against the wall mm-hmm. together. Because it was a team victory, and I just really wanted to bring them all orange slices. Right. Like, <laughs> they were so cute. I know. And I love, of course, I have to call out the technology with uh, Wesley's pager being broken. Yeah. <laughs> your your so love cute. for old tech delights me. I know. Every time there's old technology, I'm like, oh, my God, look how cute. <laughs> I also really enjoyed the fact that we had Cordy have a vision without a stupid, ironic introduction, you know, twist yeah. to it, that we just let her have a vision in the middle of nowhere and we didn't have to, like, you know, do this the irony twist right into it. So I appreciated that. Which I thought was interesting because this was also the first vision we've seen her have when she's alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, there's, there was something about the male reaction yeah. to that or the way that it's prefaced or, or framed for Angel and Wesley when it happens mm-hmm. compared to how it happens when she's by herself. Right. Mm-hmm. That I thought was really interesting. Um, but Phantom Dennis always warms my heart. Mm-hmm. And he's there for her, and she just, you know, cries out, Dennis, phone, and like mm-hmm. he zaps it straight to her, and they're a team, and he's watching out for her. I yeah. love Dennis. Dennis is great. I love that. Um, but I also love, you know, she calls out for the team. You know, she tries to get a hold of people, but when nobody's there, she deals with it on her own. She's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. <laughs> I also love that she has a purse size axe. Yeah, you know, she yep. has an axe that she can, a little lady axe that she can fit in her purse, which is really cute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love that she goes in, she attacks this guy, you know, and tries to save Gun. And I think that that is adorable. And I love that moment where she's talking, she's trying to like, you know, patch up the guy that she hit. She's like, there you go. Good as new. And he's like, I think you cracked my skull and she's like well that's new (laughs) (laughs) and her insistence that she will not leave gun's side until she knows he's safe i mean this is a different cordy yeah you know this is like her experience at the end of season one in um to shanshu in la um has absolutely changed her and she is in the fight she's brave she will risk herself and i really i like that you know yeah um it's it's nice and when they're looking for the car you know and he's like well we're gonna you know we're gonna go see the uh the guys who 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 stole it and she's like and then what you're gonna ask him to give it back and he goes i'll say please <laughs> i love i love gun because gun is absolutely not gonna say please he's gonna beat the hell out of that guy. <laughs> and i love the two of them together but yeah. um in this episode and the next one we do see cordy 
tapping into empathy at a new level. Yeah. And it gives her this, I don't know, um, but this sense of like a, a very strong presence mm-hmm. in tapping into her capability of taking care of people. Yeah. So because mm-hmm. she's developing that, the thought of her trying to protect Gun yeah. is, is believable. Yeah. Absolutely. She's badass. Yeah. And then we get Angel on the back of Wesley's motorcycle. I know. I love it. <laughs> and, and I just have to hit pause for a second on my TV screen and just appreciate right. that moment. But I could have done without the male ego panic of wearing a pink helmet because, oh, my oh, God. Like, really? It's so ridiculous. It's, I love when Wesley just deadpans at Angel. Angel, it's the law. <laughs> <laughs> and i like i'm with wesley when he says stop being such a wanker and put it on it's just a helmet you yeah. know so um i like that i like that but i, I and i i love the moment too with uh with gun and cordy in the hospital after veronica's been hurt at the party mm-hmm. and you see gun struggling with that so much and he says I can't take it easy I can never take it easy not for a second the minute I forget that somebody like Alana plays pays the price right right it's this wonderful moment of vulnerability that they give us but it's so lightly touched on he just swaps Veronica's name for or Alana's name for Veronica right and it shows us that he hasn't forgotten his sister that he still carries that vulnerability with him, that he still feels that responsibility. And I think it's so great and it's so wonderful and it's such a touching moment. And then we turn it right around where Cordy is dealing with Gunn's vulnerability and then she's like, no, you, where's my car? That was great. (laughs) I love that. Um, And I loved it when Angel, you know, was showing up for Gunn and all the (laughs) way through with Cordy refusing to leave him. Like, I just, yeah, she's like, you need help. You've got me. Deal with it. And yeah. <laughs> really, no, it's good. Yeah. And then, of course, they have to all come together as a team because that is, of course, the theme of this. We have yet another rogue guy, you know, who does. I don't. I work alone. I, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's just all this crazy stuff. And then we've got them coming all together to take Dvac down. And they need Cordy's Lady Smith battle axe and the mace <laughs> that she has in her purse, which I think is really good. I love the angel uses the pink helmet to knock the guy out. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, all right, let's do that. Um, and then once again, at the end, you know, even though it is a little bit, you know, overdone, I think, on a lot of levels, I always love that falling into community at the end. Yeah. That the end point is that Gun has found family, has found community, has found people who are his team. Yeah. And I like that. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So that covers the things that we loved, our moments of perfect happiness. Kelly Jones, what do you want to stake? So, you know, I'm a Southern girl. Yeah. Manners and hospitality are important. Mm-hmm. Cordelia and Wesley are so damn rude to Gunn when he shows up at the hotel to meet Angel. Yeah. Plus Angel's like forgetting and running late and standing him up. So Team Angel is kind of being an asshat to Gunn for no reason when all Gunn has ever done is help them. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, like, I understand, like, the whole thing with Angel sleeping and missing it that's showing the effect of Darla and whatever yeah. she's doing to him on him. So, like, that makes sense. It's still dickish, you know, considering yeah. everything that Gunn has done, you know, to help out. Um, but but I understand, like, that's part of the story. But but Cordelia and Wesley, first of all, they're having they're bickering again. I hate that stuff. Oh, it drives yeah, me crazy. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, like just being so rude to Gunn. I mean, Gunn is they know him, you know, they're working with him like they like him. He's been there for them in, in fights like there's no reason to have this adversarial, you know, relationship with him in the beginning. And I understand that one of the things that we're doing is we're starting out this episode with the relationship in one place and we're arcing it to another place. So in order to right. have that, we've got to have this tension in the beginning, but we don't need them to be rude. We can have right. we can have it be like awkward and that they don't really know each other that well. I mean, you can do something like that and then move them into community throughout the course of this episode. Uh, but yeah, the rudeness is a little bit is a little bit weird. Yeah, I, I didn't like it. Um, and you know, Nabbit's awkwardness is is usually sweet, but mm-hmm. he has to know better than to jab his sword into the face of a stranger. You would think so, and especially Gun. Because Gunn is clearly serious business and has like a foot on Nabbit. You yeah. know, I mean, that's just like a guy like Nabbit has got to have some self-preservation, you know, instincts of some sort. Right. And and plus, it's just rude. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it is. It's incredibly like, rude. You don't do that. <laughs> um, but but yeah, kind of the the lack of social skill, like all of our characters suddenly forgot how to talk to each other how to behave uh, right yeah mm-hmm. it, it really bothered me um cordelia losing all of her social skills at a party right and why because the people there are black yeah like, it that made no sense to me whatsoever yeah um, i think cordy can socialize she can yeah. handle herself you know but it's just we wanted to call out that everybody here is black and they're so different you know but cordy connects with people i mean she's the heart that's what she does so it felt really out of character for her not to be able to be comfortable and they wanted to i think make that joke about you know oh yeah you blend right you know right back to my cousin <laughs> Vinny, right um what are you a fucking world traveler exactly um <laughs> But it doesn't it doesn't really fit here. And we're spending all this time building up Cordelia's strength and her determination and her compassion and her, you know, being absolutely committed to being by Gunn's side so that he doesn't get hurt. She's there to protect him to, you know, kind of turn that in for a joke right. is, is kind of a cheap moment. And then we have this thing where he's saying hi to his friends and she presumes they're all criminals. And he goes, see, there you go, thinking all the brothers are criminals. And yeah, but yeah. Cordy, I think, would be beyond that. We regress her so that we can have these jokes. But I don't think that they're really good jokes. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, but I did like when they finally quit that mess and let mm-hmm. Cordy be Cordy. When Veronica was stabbed with the glass in the neck and Cordy stays so calm yeah, you know, and gets her help and gets her to the hospital and confronts the guy who stole Angel's car. You know, like she then she bounces back into into this this new Cordy. Yes. And mm-hmm. I love her in that zone. Yes. So but it, it just it just felt like a detriment to her character that we didn't need. Um, and I mean, really, like, really, 
mm-hmm. white people and black people can't talk together at a party. It just, it, it I don't know. It felt kind of ridiculous. To well, me. right. And I mean, the thing is, like, racism is absolutely a thing, and oh, yeah. race relations can be tense. But Cordelia is, I think, better than that. And I think that right. to fall back on these, you know, these kind of like white girl can't connect with people who are black, which I don't yeah. think is the case with Cordy. Cordy, one of her things is that she can talk to anybody. She can talk to and connect with anybody, you know, and if she's not in her element, she will she will find a way to connect with whoever is there. Right. So I found it to be something that they did so that they could make those jokes. Yeah. And I it really right. felt like it wasn't it wasn't consistent with her character. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Um, and but speaking of jokes, like yes, I know that a lot of the fight scenes. I'm with you. I'm like fight, fight, kick, kick, whatever. Right. Um, but sometimes they're exceptionally well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I have to pause because they they kind of make me laugh. Yeah. And and an axe through a skull mm-hmm. just sort of did that because. I'm not sure if that was truly amazing, badass fighting, or if it was just too unbelievable for me to willingly suspend disbelief. Yeah. Because, I mean, one of my dear friends is so hard-headed that an axe like that would bounce right off him, so I'm a little (laughs) skeptical about chopping right through a supernatural skull with one swing. Yeah. Yeah, I I can definitely see that. I don't know. It's just, when it's obvious, I mean, when it's something that actually makes me pull out of the story yeah you know i just kind of like okay whatever well the design on that demon was not great i mean he looks like five cats in a demon coat (laughs) you know i mean there's something so weird about it really looks like there was like two guys and one was sitting on the other one's shoulder and that's who we had (laughs) in this thing what are they called is that the the totem tent trope I guess. Like when you've got the three minions standing on each other's shoulder pretending to be a person. (laughs) It's just, it's just terrible. Um, And then we get to, like, this is the thing that ruins the whole episode for me. Like, whenever I look back on this episode, I'm always like, you know, because of this thing at the end where Cordy and Gunn are talking and she says, Divac wasn't the danger I was warning you about. It's you because you work alone. And I'm like, we get it. We This whole episode has been building up to that theme. We got it. We got it without the after school special specifically, you know, Im- explicitly stated message. We don't need all of that. So right. uh, so that just I hate that stuff when we take a theme and we're like, OK, in case y'all missed it, <laughs> let's state this. That that this is all about gun needing community and that he's going to be his own worst enemy. Right. Yeah. So right. the more you know. Yeah. It's just, I hate that. <laughs> and given that, I kind of wanted to stake the title of this episode. Yeah. Because it's not our first impression of Gunn or Cordy's visions. Right. So was it a message about don't trust your first impressions of the visions that we're sending you now? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a couple of visions ago sent Angel to kill a demon who was actually a protective champion. Yeah. And this vision, you know, sent Cordy in to save Gunn when he was training with his, you know, with his crew. Yeah. So that's the only sense that I can make about the episode title, but that's not actually the point they hit. No. Yeah. I don't, the first impressions as a title doesn't really make a lot of 
sense to me because I don't see how it really applies. This isn't a first impression. They've already met. They've worked together before. Right. So all of these people have met. We have the, you know, the kid who's pretending to be the demon. And so our first impression of him is wrong because we don't realize that he's, you know, a demon. Yeah. So maybe that's it. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a weak title. Well, speaking of that kid, that pulls us into research mode. Yes. Because how did the DVAC demon morph from demon form to human form? Well, it's three cats in a coat in human form. <laughs> and it's five in demon form. We have two magical cats. Okay. So we have Schrodinger's cat in a coat. Right. I can work with that. Until he's observed, we don't know if he's a demon or a kid. We just exactly. don't know. Okay, actually, that works for me. Okay. Um, but then we have this, you know, we've got in the shift from season one to season two, we see Angel shifting from helping the helpless to saving people's souls, right? Mm-hmm. And Cordy tells Gunn, you need some serious saving. Yes. But Cordy is the one who assigns herself as Gunn's champion, not Angel. Right. And I just thought that that was really interesting that like people can be saved in various ways and they can be saved by someone other than Angel. Right, because if this vision wasn't about this particular demon that he needed saving from, if it was that he needed saving from himself, that's not Angel's thing. That's not his, that's not what he does. It's what Cordy does, right? Cordy is the connection. Cordy is the one who is the heart of the group. She's the one with the empathy. She's the one who can talk to people and connect with people. So that's really for her to do. So the powers that be are sending her a message this time for her, which is maybe why they sent it to her when she was alone. Oh, maybe so. I don't know. Yeah, because I I did think that was significant because we we have not seen that before. Um. But then we get, you know, the idea of dreaming mm-hmm. on the show again and the role of dreams. And we see Angel much more connected to people, to his real emotions, to his real desires, to some warnings and worries and dreams. Mm-hmm. And those dreams are, you know, manufactured to some extent by Darla, but his subconscious is still working some mojo on its own. Mm-hmm. And it kind of seems like Angel's dreams are becoming stronger while Cordelia's visions are becoming blurrier. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's because Darla's return has tipped the scales a little in favor of the dark side. Ooh, that's interesting. If something about her presence there is sort of reeking with the mystical forces. Yeah, because she's she's Mm -hmm. already starting to pull Angel away from his purpose a little bit, right? She is diluting his clarity. And, and she's tapping into needs and wants that he doesn't express. You know, she says, you're always the protector, never the protected. Yeah. Did you save anyone today? Did they thank you? Let me take care of you. Mm-hmm. Well, comfort is not like that's the thing Angel's going to push away. Right. And he pushes it away in every form we've ever seen, except when he's dreaming about Darla. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and then I had a research question um, that will be answered in our next episode, but how is Darla keeping Angel in a state where he's asleep, but still responding to her physically? So, yeah, um, he's asleep, but they're physical. She is in the bed with him. uh, And if they're having sex on the regular and he's not losing his soul is a question. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's dream sex. And obviously, we've talked about this a number of times. It wasn't sex. It was sex with Buffy. <laughs> perfect happiness. <laughs> sex with Buffy is perfect happiness. Um, but it's still something where I think that opens up the question you know, again, in this space about whether it's sex or whatever, but there's there's stuff that will happen later without spoilers that was going to revisit that as a question. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's just dream sex. I think it's happening physically and Seems subconsciously at the same time. Yeah. Um, because they are absolutely having sex. And I'm talking the, at least once a day and twice on Sunday's time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because this is Darla. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> that's just how it is yeah um but i think it's interesting because they are physically connected and she's she's basically dream walking with him right Mm -hmm. while her body is engaged with his so she's directing that to some extent but his subconscious there there are still other influences that are woven in yeah right so you know, Lauren warning Angel about his heart and his path. Darla is not inserting that dream element. That mm-hmm. is happening somewhere else. And like when Wesley was pounding on Angel's bedroom door, in Angel's dream, that noise was interpreted as Wesley pounding a hammer against a coffin. Mm-hmm. Right. Which could also be seen as a warning for Angel. Yeah. So Darla is, she's definitely shaping this and directing this but other influences are getting in as well mm-hmm. and i just think that that's really interesting yeah no it really is and i think there's a lot of we're going to be having a lot of those questions this season no spoilers we're going to be revisiting all of those discussions <laughs> um but one of the things too is that at the party uh angel and wesley go in they uh, you know it's after the whole event of the attack by the vampires they're walking this woman out they're asking her questions angel knows she's a vampire immediately mm-hmm. right he head bashes her makes her go into vamp face you know which i thought was kind of fun yeah I did um, too, actually. but again we get down to this who can tell when someone's a vampire who can't tell when someone's a vampire like this this woman is a vampire so if it's a vampire sense the angel has that he can tell that she's a vampire then uh why can't she tell that he's a vampire maybe she could um and mm. she was just that's why she was and trying she to get away yeah, mm-hmm. so fast. Maybe she was hoping he wouldn't notice. Oh, you know? maybe she could. Maybe but, she could. But yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense to me that they can sense each other. Um, if nothing else from the, I don't know, body heat or pheromones or something. Or smell, but, who knows? Yeah, yeah, but humans who can recognize vampires is is still unclear to me how they do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, and what is it? Like, what is the giveaway? Right. You know, what are the what are the details that if you know to look for them, you can tell by looking at somebody if they're a vampire? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, that leads us to one to brood on. Uh, First Impressions isn't a terrible episode, but it's also not a great one. We get the beginnings of the effects of Darla's presence on Angel, and we see Gunn learn to work as part of a team because we all know that real men work alone. But (laughs) overall... There's not much going on here. It's a fairly skippable episode. Uh, And that moves us into our discussion of Untouched. Again, for those of you listening, Untouched deals with issues of childhood sexual abuse and trauma. So we want to give you another quick warning that it might be difficult for some people to listen to the rest of this episode as we discuss it, especially because it's going to be difficult, I think, for us to talk about as well. If this is a subject that triggers you, you may want to skip the rest of this episode of Still Dead. But 
that out of the way, let's do this thing. In Untouched, Lila brings in Bethany, a young woman with trauma-activated psychokinesis, and tries to mold her into an assassin by hiring attackers to activate her powers. Cordy gets a vision, and Angel finds Bethany and tries to help her control those powers. When Lila can't get Bethany back, she sends in Bethany's father, who had been raping her since she was a little girl, to fully traumatize her into murderous action. Bethany gets control of her abilities and sends her father flying out the hotel window, only to stop his fall right before he hits the sidewalk. With her powers under control, she gets her things from Lila's place and leaves with Angel. Meanwhile, Darla continues to enter Angel's dreams. Untouched aired on October 17th, 2000. It was directed by Joss Whedon and written by Mare Smith, who wrote nine episodes for seasons two, three, and four, and who also is a badass on Twitter. Follow Mare Smith. She's pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. I like her a lot. Fantastic. All right. So moments of perfect happiness. Kelly Jones, what you got? So I didn't think I was going to have any. Um, Yeah. I didn't expect to like this episode. And in fact, I was pretty sure I was going to hate it. And I was tempted to skip it entirely yeah. <laughs> and just mm-hmm. talk about the points I could remember. It's not an episode I like to revisit, mm-hmm. but some stake worthy things aside, it really is a good episode of Angel yes. because it builds escalation with Wolfram and Hart. It ratchets up the drama with Darla and it shows Angel in action in soul saving mode. Mm-hmm. So there were more moments of perfect happiness than I expected. Yeah, it's a it's a really difficult episode for a lot of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but Lila's here. And yeah. whenever Lila's here, I always kind of enjoy that. I love early on, we have Darla calling out Lila on her little espionage as she's breaking into Lindsay's office. <laughs> All you busy little worker bees plotting your little schemes. Yeah, I love that. And I love how as, you know, devious and evil as Wolfram and Hart is, it's still yeah. child's play to Darla. Yeah. You know, it's like she's standing in the corner watching Lila and going, oh, you're adorable. Aren't you <laughs> Aren't cute? You, cute? you think that's evil, baby? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I like the Darla-Lila dynamic. Um, I like it too. Yeah. And, you know, Darla tells Lila, there's nothing so lovely as dreams. Mm-hmm. And she shows her the, you know, the powder, like the magic powder that she's yeah. using on Angel and I appreciate the writers answering that research question for me right up front. Sure. There you go. <laughs> so we're getting a sense that she's she's, you know, put in some kind of magical whammy on Angel, which answers some of our questions about what the hell's going on with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um I love Cordy, you know, wanting to to pay gun. Yeah. Right? You know, she's like, you can't fire me. I'm Vision Girl. (laughs) But Angel being so cranky with her about it, you know. Yeah, but there was a really good moment, and it's just facial expressions between the Mm -hmm. two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she she says something like, I work for you, or I work here, and Angel says, well, let's pretend you don't. Right. You know, and then that's when we get the, you can't fire me, I'm Vision Mm -hmm. Girl. And, And you can see Angel sort of mentally take a step back yeah and he goes from this space where he's just snarling at her and he kind of smiles yeah you know and they make eye contact and she smiles at him and that smile is one of of absolute empathy like all right snarling you know injured wolf right you know i love you 
back the <laughs> no, fuck she's off. Not you know, of him or intimidated by him at right. all. Right, and and I I really did like that that moment between them, and I love Angel coming down at ten o'clock at night and needing coffee. Right, <laughs> just I can relate, man. I can relate, and I I just love Angel and coffee in general. But that right. makes me happy. Angel and coffee are kind of like Spike and whiskey. Yeah, right. Which I it's not also about love. the taste; it's about what it does for you, yes. right? You know, yes. yeah. So that's that's really fun. Um, I love Angel, of course. This is always my favorite thing when he steps into a character pretending to be a detective, and we've yes. got the detective going, "Oh no, Mister Bill!" You know, <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was nuts. I thought Angel was so convincing. He was when great. He stepped into that. He was so great. And then he looked at that, you know, that other cop and he's like, you want to think about keeping the tourists off my crime scene? Like, yeah. he, he was so believable and so in character. Right. And, and he doesn't care. He's yeah. like, as, as the real detective shows up and the cop is completely confused, Angel just walks right into the warehouse and he's like, whatever, dude. Come yeah. at me. Yeah. He was, <laughs> it was, he, he knows how to sell it. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, then we have him talking to Bethany, right? And I have to to give one of my moments of perfect happiness with a little bit of shame. Uh, because he says, I'm different from most people. And it's sad and pedantic. But I like that he says different from instead of different than. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my things. You've got cite your sources, you've got, you know, uh, define your terms. For me, it's, it's grammar. It's, it's, <laughs> I like when he uses proper grammar. And I'm not like, you know, like a stickler that much for grammar, but this is one of the things. When people say different than instead of different from, it always grates on me. And that is not a reflection of them. That is a reflection of me. <laughs> I get it, but I appreciated it. No, I have one of those. If people, um, when someone says where someone is at, mm-hmm. that one drives me crazy. <laughs> the at does not belong at the end of that. It's just where someone is. Yes. <laughs> That's the one that I'll be like, no. So, I love <laughs> yeah, you. No, there's from- other things that don't bother me at all that I will even engage in because it has like colloquial flavor. Right. But that one, that one makes me nuts. And it's, it's, completely like if you say different than there is nothing wrong with you it is how people use the phrase that's fine but I'm always like no it's different from different from so when he, when he says that it makes me happy in my heart for just a moment I also like uh this this moment where he says I won't hurt you and you can't hurt me yeah. I love that he understands his ability to empathize and to see things from other people's point of view is so lovely. And I love that he sees her. He's not afraid of her. He's not judging her. He just says, you don't have to worry about hurting me and I will not hurt you, which I think is so nice. Yeah, I do too. And then I really like when she walks away and he's like, okay, maybe she can hurt me a little. I know, and he curls up on <laughs> the floor. Like, yeah, because he's injured. <laughs> how much How much rebar? How many times are we going to have people impaled by rebar between I mean, this really? and Buffy? I um, mean, my God, just I mean, get rid God. of all the rebar. It's obviously very dangerous. Yeah, but I think one of the things that Angel did really well with Bethany in that conversation is there's a level of consent yeah. that he's asking for, right? So, I mean, he has been barbed. This thing is sticking through him. She's walking away. And instead of just yelling at her, he's like, Mm -hmm. please don't walk away. Please listen to me. Like he's still asking her consent to talk to her. 
And he puts it in her control. He right. gives her his business card. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't I, say, come with me, do mm-hmm. this, do that. He just says, here, if you change your mind, right, you can contact me. Yep. And I did like that. Because if you're a vampire and you're stabbed through your shoulder and you can remember to say, please don't walk away or please listen, everyone on planet Earth is fucking capable of consent. Yes. So. Yes. You can obtain consent. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not that complicated. <laughs> you can con- obtain consent. You just have to want to obtain consent. Yeah. And rather than Im- impose your will on somebody else. Right. Uh, I also love, of course, of course, that Bethany is staying with who? Lila, oh, Lila. Morgan. Of course Lila. she is. <laughs> <laughs> We have this moment where Bethany is talking to Lila and she says there was someone who got out who made it by themselves. So that would indicate that because the the implication is that Lila went back to her high school and Bethany happened to be there. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how I read that at all. Oh, okay. I thought it was Lila's also Lila's high school. Maybe it was. But I think that they had I think they set sights on Bethany already. Yeah. No, they knew and, Bethany was there. Yeah. They were they deliberately sent Lila there, but right. that was the impression from Bethany's, you know, point yeah. of view, right? Yeah, yeah. That, so I yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. But I think Lila was only there for Bethany. Oh, oh, oh absolutely. There yeah. she's recruiting Bethany. from her home turf. Oh, sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But it does indicate that Lila came from a you know, an underprivileged background as well. We have that whole history with Lindsay explaining why he turned to evil, you know, mm-hmm. to obtain money and comfort and all of that but there's some sense that that came from that Lila came from that same kind of thing too and then we have this you know realization that those rapists in the alley were sent after her to trigger her and that I mean I know Wolfram and Hart are bad guys I know they're terrible but that is some next level cruelty and evil yeah and I think we're seeing Wolfram and Hart level up mm-hmm. because, yeah. you know, we ended season one with them trying to assassinate three innocent blind children. Yeah. And now we're yeah. stepping into this. Yeah. So. But still that level of evil. Yeah. Still took me by surprise. It was so incredibly cruel and horrible. Yeah. Uh, but Lila, of course, you know, she's a bad guy. She's supposed to be a bad guy. Of course, my favorite thing is one more word from you and I'm going to bury you alive next to my house so I can hear you screaming. <laughs> Girl knows how to threaten people. I got to tell you. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, she does. Yeah. So I like all of that. We have um, when Bethany comes to the house later on and faces Lila down, she says, my friends don't hire men to rape me. Not my close ones anyway. So um, then Lila turns that around into I was trying to make you stronger. And Bethany says, good job. Right. And that interaction is so beautifully done because we have Lila completely trying to to mold this narrative into a space where she can retain control over Bethany. Mm -hmm. And it's that gaslighting that is so incredibly evil and so well done with Lila. So at the same time, I'm watching Lila throughout this episode and I'm like, fuck you, Lila. I hate you, Lila. I love you, Lila. Like she's so well done. (laughs) She's evil and she's horrible. And the stuff that she does is horrible. But as a character, she's so good at it. Yeah. It's funny because um, in those in those kind of moments, like 
trying to reframe that story, you mm-hmm. know, threatening to bury the guy by her house. Like, I love yes, that. that was full blown Lila. <laughs> but I actually think there was some lost potential here for mm-hmm. how Lila should have played this. And we're going to yeah. talk about that when we get to research mode. Okay. Looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did really love Cordelia. When I love Cordelia in this episode, I love her strongly. And when I was mad at her, I was mad at her strongly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, when she was tending to Angel, when he gets injured. Um, and I do love how they're starting to do that. They they literally tend each other's wounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like that. But Angel says to her, do you know how hard it is to think with a barb through your torso? And Cordy says, actually, I do. Benefits of a Sunnydale education. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. she has been there. She um, has. Yeah. You know, so I, I just really love that line. Yeah. I love when Gunn comes in and he says, mm-hmm. the fair Cordelia, you still saving my life? And Cordy says, every minute. And Gunn says, how's that working out? And Cordy says, you're alive, aren't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the interaction with Gunn and Cordelia. I shipped it, man. I oh, shipped yeah. Gunn and Cordelia really hard at this point. <laughs> Me too. And I'm actually really disappointed that we don't get more of that from them um, because yeah. I ship them hard. I love them together. But I love Gunn so much. He's he's just basically like, okay, I'm here. I'm capable. I'll help you. What do you need? Yeah. That easy affection and banter that we get between Cordy and Gunn is wonderful. And yeah. that exchange between the two of them would have won my favorite part award if it wasn't for <laughs> them having to compete with Darla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be real hard to compete with Darla. Yeah. You know, she kind of sweeps the sweeps the categories there. Yeah, she does. Um, yeah, but, it's real good. But after, you know, Cordelia is, is tending to Angel's shoulder, um, we're very fortunate as an audience that Angel didn't feel like putting a shirt back on because right. we get that view of the tattoo on his mm-hmm. right shoulder. Yeah. And we have a like a moments of perfect happiness section and we have a research section, but we don't have a section dedicated just for pure unadulterated lust. Okay. And <laughs> we may have to add that. <laughs> that is where I've got to put this tattoo. Oh, the tattoo because, looks good. The man's got a good back. Oh, he has he such has good shoulders back. and such yeah. good hands. But that tattoo yeah. It works for me, um, but I do have mm-hmm. questions about it, so we'll revisit it when we get to research mode. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, I love Daisy McCracken mm-hmm. as Bethany Chalk. First of all, she's a great actress. She's really good in the part, but I love the names, oh, both yeah. of them. Daisy McCracken? Uh-huh. Are you kidding me? You're born with that? <laughs> That's amazing. Like, I want that name. I'm going to use that name in a book someday, at any rate. She's a fantastic actress. I think she did a great job. Bethany Chalk, also a good name. Yeah, it is. I like that. I thought that was really good. So I just, I really enjoyed her in this role. I thought that she was a fantastic actress. Mm -hmm. She really, like, nailed it. I would have loved to have seen her again. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, And when she comes in, she says, this is a family business, huh? Um. Bethany is incredibly observant and she catches on to things between people very quickly, but they have her come in and she's a beautiful woman. You know, she's, Mm -hmm. and I I know that she's played as very young, um, but she's in that space between, you know, I don't know, maybe, I I don't even know how old she is. High school. Right. Well, I mean, or just out of high school. 
but she's not that she's old. wearing yeah. this white cotton nightgown you know and mm-hmm. and dressed essentially like a child and so she yeah. shows up at their door in full vulnerability mode yeah and so you have this you know this mix of woman and child of victim and you know telekinetic power um mm-hmm. and i like that combination there but the way that they dressed her in that scene i think was just i don't know that you could show up on someone's door dressed more vulnerably than that yeah and it, it brings back the little girl which is so central to her character and to what this this character's been yeah, through absolutely um but then i there was a moment between holland manners and lila mm-hmm. that i loved because yeah. you know you can tell like bethany's not falling into line and so mm-hmm. lila's you know good work is on the line with holland and holland is obviously team Lindsay, and he has no time <laughs> for lila and he tells her oh no don't you utmost confidence me and I'm like, they are both sharks and like calls to like. And I absolutely I like watching that power struggle between the two of them. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's great. And then we shift from that to Bethany and Angel talking about controlling power versus wanting it gone. You know, mm-hmm. Angel's trying to teach her how to control her her abilities, and Bethany doesn't want those abilities to exist. And yeah. to mm-hmm. me, that was a metaphor for trauma. Because if yeah. you have it, all you want is not to have it, right? Yes. But mm-hmm. you can learn to control it to the extent that it doesn't always control you. Yeah, but that's annoying. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Right? I mean, <laughs> I'm with Bethany on yeah, this one. Yeah, seriously. Like, it, it <laughs> but, really <yeah>. sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely yeah, it. But I, I did think that was a good universal line between mm-hmm. this is, you just don't want to have it, period. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes you do. But you have it and it's not going to go away. Like trauma. Exactly. Once it's there, it's not going away. And you have to learn how to how to deal with it and how to control it. You're right. right. So that it doesn't control yeah. you. And and like mm-hmm. for Angel, you know, that's kind of the way he deals with happiness. <laughs> and and I right. liked when he told Bethany, you know, he doesn't give her his story. He doesn't give her an explanation. But he's very firm when he says, you wouldn't like me when I'm happy. So right. like Angel, I mean, he doesn't, you know, obviously he still has issues around his trauma, but he does mm-hmm. have control mechanisms in place. And he's yeah. very aware mm-hmm. of that. And because he has that, he's able to help someone else who is traumatized much better than the other people in his office, which we will talk about when we stake things. Oh, we will stake that. We will stake that hard. Absolutely. <laughs> but while we're still in moments of perfect happiness, let's go to guns. Yes. I love Gunn. I love when they break into the guy's house and Gunn's like, I'm just dealing with this man's ugly ass living room set. Some people should not have money. (laughs) I love that. And then Angel's like, well, speaking of money, and Gunn says, you offering to pay me? Cool. Like, they, yeah. there had been all this debate in Team Angel about it, and would it yeah, offend him? all this sturm and drawing, and it's no big deal. When it comes to Charles Gunn, just ask. Just like, just talk. Just, just, just be, be straightforward. Forward. Be honest. Yeah. You know, Tell him yeah. what you need. This is this is one of the things that resonates with me so much about Gun, um, yeah. and I liked how I liked how they handled that. I like that too. I thought that was very good and very nice. Um, I, I, the, another thing that comes from a scene, which I will want to stake hard a little bit later, uh, but Cordy, when she's talking about, uh, Bethany is talking to her about Angel and possibly something between Cordy and Angel, and she's like, no way, I like my men less broody and more spinny. Yeah. <laughs> 
That was, <laughs> that was really good. Cute. And then we got mm-hmm. um, Angel Batmaning over cars and kind of doing mm-hmm. like the hood surf surfing thing to get to the van yeah. to save Bethany. And, and I appreciated that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I like that. Um, one of the things too, when we when we get to that scene where we have Bethany's father showing up, which is uh, just the worst. Yeah. Like Wolfram and Hart, they're so terrible throughout this whole thing that it would even occur to them to do these things is so so awful. But there is this, you know, the exercising of demons. We we deal with demons in this. We've literalized that you know, what they represent, that what the demons represent throughout most of Angel and and Buffy and the Buffy verse. But here we have what those demons are actually talking about, you know, exercising literal demons. Mm -hmm. She's facing down the demon that has her father who is human. And we've talked so much about why demons are not all bad and why some human, but I mean, here is, is the just extreme and human evil, both coming from the humans at Wolfram and Hart that would send him to her, but that he would do this to her in the first place, that he would come to see her and try to drag her back home. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just so incredibly evil. But I do like that we've got this exercising of the demon, yeah. exercising of the thing that haunts her which is mundane, which is her father. And I hated the emotional torment of that so much. But that scene with the windows exploding all around her, right? All the glass shattering, blasting Mm -hmm. out of that hotel when her father walks in the room was such a powerful moment and a perfect visual representation of the explosive integration that comes after trauma. Yeah, we talked about that quite a bit in our podcast, Big Strong Yes, where we were talking about uh, real things and, and, you know, actual trauma. And it wasn't about a story. It was just three self-help books that we walked through um, that that explosive integration, because when you're abused, you split into two people, mm-hmm. you know, the one that knows everything and that is aware of everything. And then the other one that has to shut that down in order to get through the day, you know? Um, And so there's a point where those two halves, when you've gone through a certain point in your recovery, they slam together and it is violent. It feels like those windows all exploding everywhere, but that's when you claim your power. Right. So it actually is a really wonderful metaphor for exactly that real experience. I thought so too. And and I think in... A lot of, well, of many stories that I've read and watched that deal with this kind of trauma, that was the best visual metaphor I think I've seen. Yeah, because that is exactly what it feels like. And then we have that nail that, you know, flies across the room into Cordy's arm. And all I'm thinking is, please tell me Cordy's had her tetanus shots. (laughs) (laughs) I read you saying that in mom voice. Yes, exactly. Get that tetanus shot, Cordy. Yeah. And and I like the ending of this um, when Bethany, you know, goes back to Lila, mm-hmm. gets all her stuff, you know, tells Lila to talk to the hand. Yeah. Um, and there's that kind of leveling up daring between Lila and Angel. Yeah. And so finally, like, Lila's trying, she's grasping at straws and she tells Bethany, she's like, he's a vampire. And Bethany's like, hmm, 
weird. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't, it doesn't even like, care. It doesn't like, face bitch, her. you think that's going to bother me after right. what I've been through? Right. And, and she just like swings her hand back and her yeah. suitcase flies directly into her hand and she yeah. walks out. Yeah. And, and I love that moment mm-hmm. because like I always feel stronger when I see someone else level up in badassery. Yeah. Which is another reason that we need these kind of stories. Yeah. But if we tell stories about surviving this kind of abuse, Mm -hmm. then writers need to do a good job of handling the trauma that they're representing. Yeah. And I think readers need frameworks for engaging with stories that can be healing, but can also trigger trauma. Yeah. And so for that discussion, I'm going to need some stakes. All right. Let's let's stake it. Let's stake this. (laughs) What do you got? All right. So this is a difficult episode for me to watch. And it's not the last time that Angel is going to deal with childhood sexual abuse Mm -hmm. because there is a dark current running through the show. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate having space for dark stories. Yeah. And I think the fact that this episode is so difficult to watch probably speaks to its value because there is some potential catharsis here. Yeah. it's, It's hard to face, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's valuable to have some kind of framework for reading painful stories. Yeah. And I didn't have one. Right. Like, I've never found a way or, or been taught explicitly how to engage with this kind of story if you carry this kind of trauma. Right. Um, so I made one up. Okay, and good for you. <laughs> I thought this might be a little silly, but I wanted to share the process in case we have listeners who might find this sort of thing valuable. No, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you did that. That's really, really simple. But writing it out helps me. Good. So one option was not to watch the episode at all. Mm -hmm. Um, The first time I watched it years ago, it gave me nightmares um, for several days. And I haven't rewatched it since. Oh, honey. And normally, I would keep that to myself and just deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, But this time, (laughs) I told you and Noelle, you know, hey, y'all, I may have trouble talking about this episode on Still Dead. Mm -hmm. And you both immediately offered to have Noelle pinch hit for me. Yeah. Which was fantastic. And you wrote the episode summary for me Mm -hmm. and offered to read it for me if I didn't want to. So I would say rule one of this framework is you don't have to read anything or talk about anything that you don't want to read or talk about. Yes. If you're not ready... If it's something that is just too much, it's okay for it to be too much. There might be a time later on where you can handle it, and that's great. But don't force yourself to engage with stuff that you're not ready to engage with. It is okay. That's why we put the trigger warning in earlier in this episode, so that people who just didn't want to, you know, didn't have to. Right. And I think if we were recording Still Dead a year ago, I would have asked Noel to step in for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that would have been fine. Um, but I wanted to do still dead as we planned. Mm -hmm. So I asked a friend to keep me company via text messaging while I watched this episode. Yeah. And I watched it in short parts and took breaks and took notes and texted all the SFDs. So those of you not familiar, this is the shitty first draft. So (laughs) go see Anne Lamont and Brene Brown, Mm -hmm. um, to my friend who was good enough to listen and just let me rant. Yeah. Um, and who knows me well enough to distract me with philosophical discussion on a hundred other topics at the same time, <laughs> because that's how I roll. Right. So rule two of the framework is you don't have to do this alone. Ask for support and comfort in the ways that specifically work for you. I'm so glad. You know? I'm so glad yeah. you did that. 
Yeah. And, and to my friend listening, you know who you are. Thank you. Um, but then the last thing I needed was a way to bracket my personal experiences and triggers from those of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the hardest thing to do, right? When you're yeah. watching something that triggers trauma, mm-hmm. it's very hard to separate your experience from story in yeah. a way that lets you engage with story. Mm-hmm. And so writing the SFD helped me do that because I was able to compare my emotional reactions to the notes that I took about the episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And from that could decide what to put in the script and what to to leave out. But getting curious was the key. Yeah. Right. So asking things like, why does that character's reaction feel authentic to me when this one's doesn't? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, what does it feel like the writers are saying compared to what's in the actual text? Mm-hmm. So inquiry is a powerful tool. Critical reflection is empowering, and it can give you a sense of control when you're dealing with painful material. So rule three of the framework is to get curious and to mm-hmm. write down all your thoughts, no matter how ugly they are, and then compare that personal emotional reaction to the text that you're reading. Yeah. Because any form of data analysis is awesome. (laughs) You can always work with the data. (laughs) Yeah. And I realize that those steps may seem really obvious, but until I I like tried to actually write down a process for myself, I, I didn't like the feeling of wanting to engage with the story while also being fearful of triggers. Yeah. So having just a couple of steps that I was articulating to myself really helped. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I really I want to put this up on the website for people who don't want to engage with the show, who have trauma triggers to to look at, I would love to have that framework written out so that we could put that up for them. Because I think that's so incredibly valuable. And, you know, you didn't have to do this. I would have done it alone. I would have done it with Noelle. I would have figured something out. But I'm really I'm proud of you that you that you did, you know, thank you. Well, it was, I really think it was helpful. Um, And now I can finish staking things (laughs) while still appreciating the value of the episode because there is value here. All right. No, there is. There is some value here, but there's also a lot of things to stake. So go ahead. What you got? So before we get to, you know, trauma, we have Wesley and Corey bickering and oh my God, fucking stop already. No. You know, and then Wes says to her, at least I've read a book. And I was like, what the fuck, man? First of all, we know Cordy is smart and we know she reads. Like, we just saw her reading in the previous episode before she got the vision. Right? She was reading. She was sitting down with a book. You idiot. You know, and then she says, I was the top 10% of my class. And he says, what class? Advanced bosoms. Okay, oh. first of all, not a good comeback, Wesley. Shut the fuck up. It mm-hmm. is... I mean, it's bad enough that it's insulting and misogynistic, but it's not even funny or smart. So shut up. You can't argue with a woman without being a sexist prick. I mean, if that's all you've got, you've lost the damn argument. Walk away with your tail between your legs and think about what you've done. (laughs) That's the mom voice I love. (laughs) Don't mess with me, Wesley. (laughs) So the other thing I wanted to stake is um, a scene with Lila that directly conflicts with everything I believe about this character. Yes. Lila Morgan does not fold her own laundry. <laughs> she she does absolutely. No, yes. she has an assistant who handles all her chores. And Lila makes Miranda Priestley from the Devil Wears Prada look like a fucking fairy godmother. Uh. 
So her sitting there folding laundry was an act oh, to make was, Bethany feel at home. And we yeah. should have seen something that spoke to that when Bethany left the room. It was absolutely performative. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I definitely believe that. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, when, uh, here's my big stake was, and, and the thing is that like when awful people are awful, it's okay. Like it's okay to have awful people be awful. And a lot of the things that are really, truly terrible, like the things that Wolferman Hart does and the mm-hmm. things that these men said while they mm-hmm. were in the, the alleyway make sense. It, they're terrible people being terrible. And that's what you have in fiction. And that's okay. But, you know, this I get it first. You think I want your seconds. These guys being just so incredibly gross and offensive. Mm-hmm. I just and I get it. Not I get her, which is still right. awful. But I get it like he's, I don't know, the the whole thing, it was, it, I hated it so much, even though it probably is appropriate to the characters. It's probably fine, but it just was so highly offensive to me. I couldn't take it. Oh, yeah. It was disgusting beyond the point Mm -hmm. it needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We also end up with, uh. You know, you're special in the old non R word sense of the word. And and we keep using that word and we have women use it all the time. Yeah. So I just we just need to stop. It's not funny. I don't like it. (laughs) I don't want to have to talk about it. It's terrible. Uh, So that I really wanted to stake. And also Cordy at work wearing a top that barely covers her the plunge Mm -hmm. is all the way down to her belly button she's wearing stiletto heels at work yeah she fights demons every day like i get that there's this you know value to being fashionable and people want to look good and they want to dress the way that they're that makes them happy but her job is fighting demons I mean, unless those stiletto stiletto heels are going to come off and be plunged into a demon's eye, which, okay, fair enough, maybe, right? Maybe she's got weapons on her feet, in which case, fine. But it's just, I'm looking at the way that she's dressed. I mean, she's, you know, I don't know, like it's, and it's not like a shaming thing that she's wearing this like deeply plunging neckline. It's just about when you're fighting demons, you know, she's endowed. Like those boobs are going to come flying out of that thing. Like there's no way. I'm telling you, like every week I struggle just podcasting with boobs. I know. Like if I'm <laughs> if I was demon fighting with fighting like a you demon, wanna, you no, want to have is, like a, a sports bra. Sports bra. That and, is two yes. sport bras mode. That, like, is, that is two sports double down. Bras. Because she yeah. doesn't know when a demon's going to come cracking in there, you know? Right. So, I mean, I get she wants to look pretty. I think she has every right to look pretty. I think she should dress how she wants. But yes. this to me is not... It doesn't feel like Cordelia dressing for Cordelia. It feels like the costume designers dressing this incredibly beautiful woman specifically for the male gaze. That's what bugs me about it. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, and I think we saw that a little bit, too, in her having a vision on her own versus her having a vision yeah. in front of the men. Like there was there's a performative element to it that usually plays into an irony smash. Yes. It doesn't happen when she's by herself. Mm-hmm. She's not wearing high heels in her apartment. She's wearing yeah. comfortable pajamas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. And and if nothing else, she should have a pair of boots under the desk. Yeah, or she could be wearing a pair of boots with yeah. that outfit. That'd be fine. Oh my God, that would be adorable actually. But you've got her in stiletto heels. Yeah. I mean it's just like so it feels 
very, I don't know, it feels, it doesn't feel like, uh, Cordy can look fashionable and still make sure that she is strapped down and ready for bear. You know? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, but someone who I would believe would walk around her apartment in stilettos is Lila. Oh, absolutely. And when we see Lila watching Bethany's nightmare and smiling. Yeah. That to me was like the greatest illustration of Lila's true character that mm-hmm. we have seen so far. Yeah. Because God, that woman is evil. Yeah. And you talk about putting lightning in gaslighting. Yeah. Like she is genuinely enjoying that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Bethany's flashbacks are too, they're just too much. They're, they're too painful. Yeah. Um, but Lila is not, you know, only happy that they're happening because of what's going to happen to Bethany's powers. She is enjoying that moment. Yeah. And I think that that really shows us how evil she really is. Yeah, that is that is some hardcore evil. Yeah. Um, which is and again, it's good. Yeah. But I want to stake it. Like it's yeah. and I think I'm I'm not like I feel like it's unfair to say it's bad in the staking. I'm just going to say that the staking is not necessarily about an element being bad. It's about it being like so like horrible that you want well, to stake think, it, which I, I think, think makes an it, idea it makes of it a good. threshold here. Yeah. Right. Because Angel goes to some dark places that are a little beyond a viewer's expectations. Yeah. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. Um, I think that they actually do some really, really good work in that space. Yeah. But when we have episodes that are also, you know, very light and fluffy or even silly, Mm -hmm. when you get that threshold is suddenly, you know, deepened and you're not prepared for that as a viewer. Yeah. That I think is the problem because we're not all like if you watch Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. you know what you're getting. Right. It's going to be like that until you get to the Red Wedding and you're like me and then that threshold is crossed. That's when I dropped out. Yeah. I went to the Red Wedding and I was like, nope, I haven't gone back. I haven't gone back. But but I do think it is. I think that it is a threshold. Um, And I think it's about how much of that dark space you're you're comfortable with. And the, the problem with Angel is not that they go there, but that they go there inconsistently. Yeah. So no, you're that. not prepared for that when they, yeah. you know, when they go dark, when they raise the stakes and evil, they do it well. Yeah. But it's not the ride that you're expecting based on episodes that have come before. Yeah. I'm just not, there's a lot of stuff that I'm staking in this episode that I'm not sure is bad writing. I guess that's no, where I'm I coming from. I don't think from. it's bad writing at all. Yeah. It's just, it's just a bit too much for me. Right. It's like some people can have those like super spicy buffalo wings yes. and I can't. <laughs> exactly. We're we're a little bit a little bit too spicy on the evil, I think, with this one. It's a little bit too yeah. much evil sriracha, you know? Yeah. Um we have this moment too where Cordy is is you know, Cordy and Wesley are in the Hyperion. They're looking, you know, after Bethany has left and Cordy's, you know, being thoughtful about Bethany's vibe or whatever. And then she tells Wesley you're not a woman. You don't understand women and sex, you know? And it's it's this mystical idea that women's magical t- intuition that guys just don't have, right? <laughs> and it's not mystical. It's not magical. It's called paying attention. Men can also do that. And we see Angel do it all the time. 
Angel yeah. intuits and sees things all the time. It's just about paying attention. And it's one of these things where it's like, well, you're just a man. You can't do that. No, you can. You got eyes. You can listen. You can pay attention. You can have empathy. Like you can you can do that. That's completely within your your realm of capability. Then there's also this women in sex thing. You know, she's you don't understand women in sex and she's picking up on sex. Where is she getting that from? Bethany yeah. is not throwing out a sexy vibe. I mean, Cordelia is wearing these clothes that are incredibly sexy. Bethany is not. Bethany mm-hmm. is, and that's fine. Like, I don't, I'm not shaming anybody who wants to wear sexy clothes. You're a girl, wear what you want. Men see your bra strap. They should be able to control themselves. That's fine, right? right. Um, it's not about modesty or anything, but it's just like, I don't understand why we're pulling this into, you know, Bethany and sex. Why are we, why is she making that association with Bethany? It didn't make sense to me. Well, at first I saw it and, and I read it as, Cordy falling into the um, women blaming other women, women distrusting other women's face. But when I watched it again, I really saw it differently. And I think that there's, there's a false stereotype or a false perception about vibes Mm -hmm. and victims. Right. Right. Especially with a girl as beautiful as Bethany. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that Cordy is more afraid of Bethany's power. Yeah. And maybe a little jealous or intimidated by her beauty, because mm-hmm. that is Cordy's power in some way, right. mm-hmm. than her actual sexuality, because women who have power are very often feared or hated for it. Oh, yeah. And that kind of sexual vibe may be a real thing, and I think it is in some cases, but when it is, I think it's a case of recognition. It's Mm -hmm. not an early warning system. Right. If you've been abused and you meet someone else who's gone through similar abuse, you may be able to sense it. Right. But I think Cordy is sensing it from Bethany because Cordy now knows what it means to be violated. Right. But she doesn't quite recognize that in herself yet. Mm -hmm. And so she turned to victim shaming before she turned to empathy. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's interesting. My. I have no citations for that. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that read. I think it's really good. Uh, Okay, so I think the thing that I want to stake most of all is Wesley testing Bethany by attacking her and bringing up her father. High risk strategy there, Wes, and not just for you getting your ass thrown across the courtyard, but the damage and the trauma that you are inflicting on this girl on a hunch You know, you can ask questions, you can be empathetic, you can, I mean, there are a million different ways that you can say, I think this may be the source of what's going on with you, you know, without coming at her, mentioning her father. I mean, my God, what kind of game do you think you're playing? I mean, at least Cordy calls him out on it. So there's that. But damn. Yeah. Well, and I think what we see here is actually... Wes's weaknesses mm-hmm. and his his lack of self-awareness where those weaknesses are concerned. Yeah. Because he falls into, um, he says, statistically speaking, the father was the best guess. Right. Well, I don't think that that is why Wesley went there. Right. I think Wes is bleeding some of his own trauma onto Bethany. Sure. Because when Bethany said family business, It was Mm -hmm. because she could tell that this was a group of people who cared about each other and worked closely together Mm -hmm. because Bethany is observant as fuck. Right. 
But Wes's lens of family business means something else. And we've seen hints of abuse from Wesley's father before. And we've also seen Wesley's lack of self-awareness in terms of his own pain and trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. So life tip, if your own trauma ain't fully integrated, don't go poking (laughs) sticks at someone else's. Right. (laughs) But unfortunately, if your trauma isn't fully integrated, you are split into two parts, the one that knows and the one that doesn't. So that's when you're most likely to go poke in your nose in somebody else's trauma. And Wesley has this need to be right. Yeah. Right. He sees Mm -hmm. this as a problem to solve, as a riddle to answer. Right. And he had no business provoking Bethany in that way because that's not how you handle someone who's been traumatized. But he was more concerned about being right about his theory. So it was like Wesley's brain said, I hypothesize that her father (laughs) raped her. Let me run a quick experiment to test said hypothesis. Oh, look, she freaked out. I got it right. Right. And he's more concerned about being right in that way than in being right about how he treated Bethany. Yeah. And I love Wesley, but at this point in the show, he has got a lot of series growing up to do. I know. I mean, I do. Like, Wesley and Xander. Although Xander, I think, is a lot worse. In a oh, lot. Yeah. He's worse in a low-level way. <laughs> that, like, mm-hmm. is constant drip throughout. And Wesley is something uh, where I think throughout the run of the show, we're going to be addressing these things, which we don't do with Xander, which is why I feel like Xander is worse. But Wesley, god damn, in this episode... I just wanted to slap him. That was oh, yeah. one of the cruelest things I could ever imagine. And so, so stupid. No, he you earned know? his trip across that room. Oh, he did. I liked seeing him getting shot across the room. Oh, <laughs> he yeah. deserved it. And then he gets <laughs> he gets sent home, right? <laughs> like, you're on suspension. Go away, yeah. you know, and he doesn't yeah. come back. So I, I appreciated that. Um, and then we have this other thing that I wanted to really super stake. Um, Cordelia takes Bethany out. Right. They go shopping. They're having coffee. She befriends her. And then she says, don't sleep with Angel. Mm-hmm. And it's not even the fact that she's telling Bethany not to sleep with Angel. I mean, there are reasons why she might warn Bethany if she's getting a sense that there's an attraction between her and Angel. But first of all, uh, that's Angel's job. He knows right. his deal. You know, she's right. acting like Angel is absolutely has absolutely no agency in who he does or doesn't sleep with. I know we have this common idea of, oh, I tripped and my penis fell in her. But that's not how it works. Men mm-hmm. can control themselves. But here we have this thing where instead of allowing and trusting Angel to handle that shit, should it come up, which, by the way, he did. Yes, not he that did. Cordy was there to see it, but he did. We have her... In this, you know, girl on girl misogyny, which I don't really care for, coming after Bethany and being aggressive with her as though there's something in Bethany. It's like this slut shaming, you know, don't sleep with him. Don't like all this kind of stuff. It was. And then she does this thing where she's like, you know, with the with the rapists who she squished, right? Mm-hmm. She says, you could have floated them away or spun them until they puked. Um, they'd already hurt her. They'd already yeah. attacked her. She was bleeding on the ground. It was self-defense, you know? And then as soon as we finish that, Cordelia pulls it back. But the bad taste from the rest of that is so bad that all of it... I want to stake a million times and it does not feel at all consistent with the Cordelia that we know and love at this point. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also am fully in camp. 
if you want to rape somebody, you deserve to get squished by the heaviest damn thing that's around you. Yeah. If you say, I get it. I don't want your sloppy seconds. If you're like, if yeah. you're going after somebody to try to rape them, even if you're not saying those horrible things. Yeah. Yeah, no. you deserve to get squished. You're tracking down a young girl in an alley. Yeah. May a piano fall from the 12th story. Oh, like, absolutely. I'm totally fine with that. I just want a that. bunch of handy pianos ready to go for just that situation. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, that that whole thing with Cordelia really bothered me, too. Um, but the worst part for me was Bethany's father showing back up. Oh, God. And, and not even from the story perspective, because... When he walked in, you know, and he says rabbit and all the windows exploded. Like, that is damn good writing. Yeah. But then we have to take it one step too far. Right. right? And when he's talking to her and he says, you're a good girl. Well, mm-hmm. we don't need that fucking line from him. Yeah. Because there is a difference between demonstrating trauma in a story and falling back on every childhood sexual abuse stereotype that has ever existed. Yeah. All we need from him is that callback to her nightmare. Yeah. He, he walks in, he says, rabbit, the windows explode. All he has to do to fully set her off after that is say, come on, let's go downstairs. Right. The mm-hmm. only lines needed from that man, that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I don't like, you know, taking, it's like you've got a, like a dollop of incredibly powerful paint mm-hmm. and you can't be satisfied to just leave it in place. You've got to smear it all over the canvas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't like how they did that. Um, But the worst part of all of it was that once again, we have no consequences for a sexual predator. Right. And I'm glad for Bethany's sake that she didn't kill her father because of what that would have done to her, Mm -hmm. not what that would have done to him. Although I would argue if she had let him hit the sidewalk, I don't know that I would be that upset about it. No, not at all. But not what at happened? All. Not at all. But what happened to him after that? Like a cozy plane ride home <laughs> where he's free to rape other little girls? Like yeah. if we have an emerging fatal flaw in Angel, it is the writer's refusal to carry through with consequences for people who commit sexual assault. Yeah. And I am sick of it. And there are not enough stakes in the world. All right. You want my head cannon? Yes. You want my head? Okay. Throw it out the window. Flying toward the ground. Suddenly stops and then drops fairly unhurt, right? Right. Stumbles to the like to his feet, completely disoriented, not knowing what's going on. Stumbles into the road, boom truck, done. I love it. That's my head cannon. That she is didn't kill him. Yes, but he got squished. I like it. Or a a piano. Or boom. No, I like I yeah. like the truck. I like because the truck. I am now pretending that it was a courier service on the way to Wolfram and Hart. Yes, absolutely. And it's going to take forever to get his brains out of the grill of that truck. (laughs) Yes, I love it. That works for me. Absolutely. All right. So I think we're done with steaks. Yep. (laughs) I feel like I've just, I'm staking everything. um, Because there's a lot of stuff I want to stake in this. Uh, What do you got for research mode? Oh, my God, so much. Mm -hmm. So much. And it's one of the reasons I'm glad I went back and watched this episode. Yeah. Because it did open up some beautiful research questions. Good. Um, So we get Darla explaining dreams as both a means of understanding and control. Mm -hmm. Right. And we see that between Angel's dreams and Bethany's nightmares, like a broken mirror. Right. This reflection of pleasure and pain. Mm -hmm. Because the dreams are an escape for Angel. But they're a torture for Bethany. Yeah. And and the idea of Darla, you know, or the magic that she uses or just the role of those dreams 
kind of straddling those two spaces, mm-hmm. I thought was really well done. Yeah. Um, and I like some of the, the questions that it raises. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had a more practical question because sometimes Wesley strikes me as still being in watcher mode. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to parse out his concern from a- for Angel from his critical observations. Yeah. So when Angel's telling them, you know, that he's been having trouble sleeping, Wesley's like, oh, this has been going on for a bit, hasn't it? You sleep more, you're less rested. Are you dreaming? Yeah. And I'm wondering, does Wesley know or suspect something about Angel's dreams? Well, as a watcher, right, we know that slayers have dreams like that, mm-hmm. right? That they have these prophetic dreams. They have dreams that are not regular dreams, that they are messages. We also know that Wesley is, or Angel is connected to the powers that be. He sends, the powers that be send the messages through Cordelia, but they could also mess with Angel. They can mm-hmm. do whatever they want. They are the powers that be, right? So I think that he's looking for something Uh, you know, a phenomenon that he's familiar with because of his his experience with the Slayers, you know, or the training as a watcher and trying to see if maybe they're applying to Angel because you sleep more, you're less rested. Like that's Mm got to be one of the things that will instantly jump out to him. Okay. So I figure it's that. Yeah. I'm just, there's just a certain level of objectivity Mm -hmm. in the way that Wesley observes Angel. Yeah. That's kind of a red flag for me or, or just an area of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I had the most fun with in terms of dark creative writing yeah. <laughs> was um, I saw serious weakness in Lila's strategy with Bethany. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Lila is cunning and she is ruthless, but she does not fully comprehend human emotion. Mm-hmm. And trying to tap into Bethany's trauma with more trauma Right. Beyond being cruel and vile and inhumane, was also incredibly short-sighted. Yeah, and it carried the risk of Bethany shutting down completely, or even driving her to suicide. And mm-hmm. I don't think Lila even that that even dawned on her. Right. So I tried to rewrite this in a way that would have shown Lila as even scarier and more evil than she was here, because in terms of playing for the dark side, Lila could have done better. Ooh, I want to hear right. this. Okay. So a smarter plan would have been to fully gain Bethany's trust and to show her some of Lila's own vulnerability, even Mm -hmm. if it was fake. Yeah. Right. So use Darla's dream powder on Bethany. Mm -hmm. Steer those trauma dreams, but also invent flashes for Lila. So Bethany would believe that Lila had been hurt in a similar way. Right. Mm -hmm. Then hire the thugs to attack Lila in (gasps) front of Bethany. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because if Bethany cared about Lila, she would want to protect her. And that probably would have activated her powers even more strongly than the self-defense mode of being attacked herself. Wow. Right? Then Lila could have made Bethany feel like a warrior and shown her that she could use her powers to help women just like her and Mm -hmm. conned her into believing that she would help people on behalf of Wolfram and Hart by becoming an assassin and taking out bad guys. Right? Mm -hmm. Bethany was used to pain and attack and violence, and Lila just gave her more of the same. Mm -hmm. But if she had given Bethany a purpose and a mission and a way to channel that power, she could have cultivated one hell of a loyal assassin. Oh, yeah. And Lila's betrayal and manipulation of Bethany would have been much more horrendous. 
Oh, yeah. And we could have had Bethany around for a longer time to kind of play that arc out. Oh, that would have been wonderful. Yeah, I love it. And if I had been competing for that corner office, I'd have sent my new apprentice to Holland Manors and shown him who was boss. (laughs) Because you want to see the utmost confidence, baby? I will show you utmost confidence. Oh, my God. I am so glad you use your powers for good. (laughs) But I was saying, like, that to me is the depth Mm -hmm. of evil that lila is capable of yeah and and i think that they she's missing so much of basic human connection and we've seen that from her before she doesn't know how to connect to fate she -hmm. doesn't know how to connect to darla yeah and then now she's really not connecting to bethany in the way that would have been the most powerful so all of that cunning and coldness that she has is not working for her as well as it could and it's an area where Lindsay has the upper hand. Right. Pun intended. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it's a weakness in Lila. And so yeah. I, I think that they could have taken that character to an even bigger place. And it would have been, I mean, it would have been horrendous, but it would have been fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really great. That's really great. That would have been great. So one of the things that I kind of saw in here that I thought was was interesting um, is this the effects of the abuse, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have Bethany believing that she's a slut, right? You know, she's going into Angel's room, using sex to get control, offering her body up before a man takes it and then leaving it while he's there, mm-hmm. right? So we have this you know, connection between, you know, being sexually abused when you're young makes you, you know, sexually forward, um, you know, and and there is some evidence that that is, is an effect that happens, you know. Um, and then we've got, you know, her father as the trigger mm-hmm. to kind of access all that power, all that trauma, we have that integration. And I thought it was kind of interesting the way that they were addressing all of these things you know under this this umbrella of this is what happens to people you know when they're abused and uh, and I thought it was kind of interesting but I, I didn't have like the deep thoughts about it you know because mostly at this point I was so exhausted by this whole thing I'm so emotionally yeah. exhausted by all of this trauma um, but did you have any thoughts about that this this idea that she thinks she's bad she's blaming herself which is something that so many yeah, people with I, abuse end up I doing I think that's absolutely common mm-hmm. um, and probably a universal experience mm-hmm. but I think that they I think they were trying to play that out in a way that is actually differentiated and a little more nuanced um, at least in my experience. Yeah. So I think there there is a big stereotype. You know, if you're sexually assaulted young, you become yeah. promiscuous or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to believe that you were abused because of something that's wrong in you, you know. Right. Um, but I think that the way that actually plays out is you either, if you're sexually aggressive, which now there's, and that's not always the case. There's also the complete opposite. Right. Where mm-hmm. you are completely shut down. You can't mm-hmm. access sexual pleasure. Right. Um, and, and that is also a horrendous side effect of, of that kind of trauma mm-hmm. um, where any kind of sexual activity will lead to panic and, and breakdown and fear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may actually be the more common of the two, but it's less sensational on yeah. film. And yeah, so we, right. we, we only see the first. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think that the okay so if if you experience that trauma and you're got going down the flow chart right of trauma right um, and you end up in the branch that leads to sexual aggression then I think there's actually two causes for that and they may mm-hmm. overlap but I don't think that they overlap in the way that it showed in this episode mm-hmm. so one is to go numb yeah right and so mm-hmm. this is in that space um if someone has ever experienced like almost a form of self-mutilization yeah uh, a, a form of self-mutilation mm-hmm. where like for example a young girl who cuts herself right it, that's not actually about the pain. That pain leads to feeling, it, it gives you a level of peace, of numbness, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so sexual activity can do that too. And Bethany talks about that in terms of numbing out. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But normally, well, I don't want to say normally, uh, but often in the case of sexual abuse victims, they they tend to find other abusers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is more of that numbing behavior. Mm-hmm. So you're engaging in sexual activity when you don't particularly want to, mm-hmm. but you go along with it because it brings the numb with it. Right. Mm-hmm. That is not what we see from Bethany here, but that's mm-hmm. how she presents it to Angel. Right. Like, we'll have some fun. I'll go out of my body, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think they mix that way. Yeah. Um. But then, you know, the second element of that is is sexual forwardness mm-hmm. in order to experience control and power yeah and not necessarily in a negative way mm-hmm. and that is the lens that i see least represented yeah in story um and not altogether represented well mm-hmm. because if you can tap into that if you can use sexual power in order to make yourself feel a sense of control and power. And you can do that in a way that you're not harming someone else. Mm-hmm, right. So not that you were sexually abused. So you become a sexual abuser, mm-hmm. you know, but that you become very much in charge of your own sexuality and are able to use that in a way that makes you feel in control and in your own power. Mm-hmm. I think that is probably the biggest gap that exists yeah. in this story space. It's not one that I see handled well very often or ever approached. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that they they were just working with a diluted stereotype yeah. here. And it didn't come across the way that I think I, I think it could have been done deeper and, and a little more nuanced. Yeah. And that's probably way too long of a rambling answer. No, but. no. I think that that's really good. I think that's that's what I was kind of like coming to is that it just felt... Everything that we do in this episode with this from the the victim blaming and the victim shaming and this idea that she's tainted and damaged and, you know, and that she feels like there's something wrong with her and that she thinks she's a slut and she thinks that she's bad, you know, because these things happen to her. Um, some of it does ring true. And some of it does like that beautiful moment where the, the windows all blow away, that, yeah. that integration, you know, that that is actually a, a really true to trauma experience, you know. Um, but the rest of it feels like we're we're sort of picking up all of these little things that that culturally we have an understanding about what sexual abuse does to children. Right. But the reality of it is is much more complex, much more nuanced. And, you know, and suicidal attempts and self-harming are actually signs of sexual abuse in children. Right. So if you have children who are in that space, that's something you want to look very, very closely at. 
if that's, you know, if that's a possible thing. But, um, but it's all very complicated. And the ways that different people respond to different kinds of trauma is all individual. Right. You know, so yeah, but we did get this, you know, she calls herself a slut and all Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But in the very beginning, when she tells Angel to stay away from her, Mm-hmm. Like she's essentially saying, okay, dude, I'm in a dangerous space right now. Step back. And he yeah. doesn't. And he gets impaled. Yeah. She says, great. I stabbed an angel. Now I'm mm-hmm. really never getting into heaven. Right. Well, first of all, she told him to back up. Right. He didn't. You know, mm-hmm. the telekinesis went off. He got stabbed. But it's this idea of, okay, here's one more sin that's stacked up against me. Yeah. Which, right. number one, she didn't do on purpose. Number two, she tried to warn him. Right. But she already her fault. Right. But she already had that in her head. Right. Here's just one more reason why Mm -hmm. I'm not getting into heaven. And then we have that whole idea of angel in heaven and worthiness that kind of, you know, invisibly runs through the show. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And I think that that is if you're going to play in that space, Mm -hmm. you you better bring your full palette because it's going to Mm -hmm. require some nuance and some layers. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they quite hit that right. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, and, and one of the biggest ways that that bothered me was in the episode title yeah, of Untouched. Because I get that they're playing on the idea of psychokinesis. Mm-hmm. Because you can move things without touching them. Um, yes. But it's also a really negative view of sexual abuse. Um, right. Or, or the idea of, you know, purity as it relates to sexual mm-hmm. abuse. Yep. And I hate what the title implies. Mm-hmm. So I am choosing to reframe it as Bethany's real power and potential being as yet untouched. Yes. Because mm-hmm. she's not done. Mm-hmm. And it would have been great to have her come back as a recurring character and to see her powers continue to grow. Yeah. And have her help Angel kick Wolfram and Hart's ass for fucking with her in the first place. Yeah. We need consequence. We need consequence yes. for her dad. We need consequence for Lila and everybody at Wolfram and Hart. I know that they are, um, you know, evil and all mm-hmm. of that. But Lila losing out on the assassin when Holland Manners is kind of breathing down her neck a little bit is not enough consequence. Getting right. hit in the face with a lamp. Not enough consequence. Yep. There has to be something more than that for Lila. I love Lila. Her being evil is part of what I love about her. I mean, there's lots of stuff with Lila that I absolutely right. adore. But in right. this instance, right. there needs to be more. And I really would have loved to have seen. And, you know, we can't spoil what doesn't happen. We don't see Bethany again. Um, but right. I would really love to have seen her come yeah. back and just just mm-hmm. kick ass. And the And the consequence should be there because, I mean... Lindsay lost a hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. So that that as as the depth of evil from Wolfram and Hart levels up, mm-hmm. the consequences need to level up. So too. do the consequences. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but my last research question, because I'm going to end on a happy note. Right, yeah. Is Angel's tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, because, oh, my God. Like, I, I tried to look it up. You know, and, and do a little bit of research about it. And, and it seems to be a demi lion with yeah. wings, um, which can be considered a griffin mm-hmm. and also considered not a griffin. And, and just kind of that that space between those two creatures. But yeah. it's based on an illustration from the Book of Kells. And it has mm-hmm. a scripted A underneath the oh, creature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hella gorgeous. Um, but it's also a very religious symbol. I mean, I looked at the picture of the Book of Kells, and they're almost identical except for the A. Wow. So mm-hmm. I don't have the expertise to interpret and analyze that meaning. 
Uh-huh. So if we have any listeners who know what that tattoo means or knows about the illustration from the Book of Kells, please holler at me. Oh, yeah. No, that'd you know. be really interesting. But if it's a religious symbol, I mean, he can't hold a Bible. Right. right? The cross burns him. Right. Holy water burns him. Right. How can he have a tattoo of a religious symbol on his Exactly. Body? And and why would he have chosen that in the first place? Yeah. Um, and then I entertained myself with uh, inventing scenarios of how Angelus woke up uh, tattooed. Uh, <laughs> You know, like, what the hell did I do last night? Um, (laughs) That left me very amused. Um, But the Book of Kells is on display at Trinity University in Dublin, Ireland, and it has been for a very long time. Um, So we could just do a chipper's field trip. Oh, let's go. Let's go see it. Yeah. So we need to do some research around that. But I'd like to learn more about it. All right. Chipperish European vacation. Let's do it. (laughs) All right, Kelly, you got one for us to brood on? Yeah. So Untouched is a solid episode, but it touches on some very disturbing material and can be really upsetting to watch. Uh, As far as the bigger picture for Angel, not much happens here besides Darla continuing to mess with Angel. But that's a storyline that's just treading water for now. So we deemed Untouched a skipper. Yeah. All right. So here we are at the end of a very long episode, but I think a really, really good one. I think we've had some great discussion here, but let's go ahead and lighten this up. Kelly, what's your favorite part? The opening dream in First Impressions with mm-hmm. Angel singing for Lorne and Darla in that Aww. red dress because yeah. Angel and Darla dancing while Lorne croons on stage is mm-hmm. always going to be my favorite part. Absolutely. What about you? Um, for me, I love Gunn and Cordy. I, mm-hmm. I love them both in first impressions and that work that they do together and their their um, dynamic, I think, is really great. And I also love them in that, that fair Cordelia moment at the beginning of this episode. So it's kind of like my favorite thing across both of the episodes. Yeah. Um, it was really nice to see Cordy being brave and tough and handy in a fight. And I just love Gunn all the time, no matter what. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag still dead. For more in-depth discussion, visit the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum and join in the fun. Or you can support Chipperish Media to the tune of a buck a month or more and gain access to the live chat and Discord where you can hang out with me and Lonnie and all the Chipperish patrons who have eyes and ears all over the place, not to mention teeth. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. You can also show your support for Still Dead by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review. That's one of the most effective ways to show support for your favorite podcasts. Or you can use your social media platform of choice to tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Next week is Chipper Staff Development Week, but we'll be back in two weeks with Season 2, Episode 5, Dear Boy, which mm-hmm. is a watcher, and Episode 6, Guys Will Be Guys, which is a skipper. But we also have a special treat for you during the week off, an interview with biologist and podcaster Lolly DeRozier, who schools us in vampire biology. So be sure to watch your feed for that to show up during our week off. Until then, hop on board, gorgeous. All right, hang on for one second. This cat is meowing and I've got to throw her out. Hang on. Swear to God, I should have Zoe on the chipperish page. I'll put a picture of her in a bio saying this is the cat who's always meowing in the background. She always wants to be in whatever room I'm in. Aww. She's and a so, rogue squirrel hunter. She is a she rogue squirrel hunter. Yeah, that's part of our show. show. I'll put a picture of her in. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you should.
say this is the cat that you hear in the background all the time because she always <laughs> has to be in the room with me when I'm recording. 